If you've ever seen the film E.T., you'll know a little bit what it's like to be an alien. If you haven't seen the film, uh, E.T. is a little alien. He's quite cute, but he's longing to go home because he's out of place. This world isn't his home. And, and so he feels strange, surrounded by humans. It's the same kind of feeling I'm expecting to have myself in a few months as an English person when the Six Nations starts. Uh, everyone's been very nice to me so far, but I know that when that starts, the gloves are going to come off, um, particularly maybe when England start winning. <laughs> well, I'm joking, um, but, <laughs> um, only a little bit. Um, but according to the Apostle Peter, uh, that's a really good illustration of what it's like to be one of God's people. Uh, to see that, I, I wonder if you could turn back uh, in your Bibles to 1 Peter 1. Uh, it's on page 1217 in the Pew Bibles. Peter's writing to churches that are scattered across modern-day Turkey. And have a look at verse 1. He calls those Christians strangers in the world. Peter says that's his reader's identity. And along with that, they find that people are treating them as being quite strange in their situation. Let me tell you some of the things that as you read through the letter, you'll find out what Peter's readers were facing. Uh, Peter says that they were accused of doing wrong by the people around them. Uh, the people thought it was strange that the Christians didn't live the same way that they did. Uh, and so they heaped abuse on the Christians for that. The Christians were insulted because of the name of Christ. So verbal abuse, social exclusion, uh, being accused of doing wrong. That's what it's like to be one of God's people, according to Peter. And as we were hearing last week, this really isn't that different to the direction our society is heading in today. We're finding that being associated with Christ increasingly means that we're being seen as being intolerant, as being backward, an obstacle, and unloving. And so we're finding that people aren't wanting to engage with us. I think a statistic that Christoph mentioned last week that a lot of us found uh, quite challenging, was that up to 70% of people in the UK are now saying that they never intend to come to church. And we thought a little bit about that. We thought, well, that means we can't just stick a sign out on the front door now, uh, on the Upper Newtonards Road, uh, and expect that people are going to come. And so we're going to have to engage with them where they are. We're going to have to be engaging with people in an everyday way, as part of an everyday church to show people what Jesus is really all about. And Peter says, well, that's actually normal. That's not a huge kind of shift, really. Peter says that's our identity. We're strangers in the world. And so we should expect to be treated like that. But what I want to ask as we start this morning is, how do you feel about that? Because it doesn't sound that great, frankly, does it? Uh, if you're not a committed Christian here this morning, maybe you're thinking, well, this is why I'm not really that keen to pursue a relationship with Jesus much further. It sounds like if I engage more, I'm going to become more of a stranger in the world. And I quite like this world, thanks. And other th others of us may be thinking, well, why would I keep going as a Christian? Why would I bring up my kids to love Jesus for themselves? Isn't that going to be just exposing them to a lot of social exclusion and a lot of pain and heartache? And what about for us? Why would we bother to be a church that engages with the world if this world just thinks we're strange? Wouldn't we?
we'd be better to just huddle together. Well, I wonder if uh, there's an answer bubbling into your head as I ask that question. Well, today we're going to look at Peter's answer to that. Uh, And the answer is in another identity that Christians have that's there in verse 1. So look back with me. Uh, Peter says that these Christians are strangers in the world. But before he does that, he calls them God's elect. And that just means people that God has chosen to be part of his kingdom. And in the rest of this first part of the letter that we're going to look at today, Peter wants to show us what that identity means, what comes with that identity. If being strangers in the world means social exclusion and uh, opposition, what comes with being one of God's elect? What does that identity mean for us? And we're going to see three things from verses 3 to 12 uh, that are going to show us what it means to be God's elect. And the first one is there in verse 3. It's that God's elect have a living hope. Let's uh, reread verse 3. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think a lot of people today would define hope as wishful thinking, as what you'd like the world to be, what do you hope it'll be, and if you believe it enough, it'll maybe even come true. Well, if that's right, if that's the real definition of hope, no wonder that a lot of people think that the Christian hope is something you could take or leave. It's okay for us, but it's not really something that anyone else wants to get involved in. But Peter says that is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope isn't built on make-believe. Peter says it's built on the solid fact in history of Jesus' resurrection. Peter points us back, doesn't he, in verse 3, to the empty tomb and the day when Jesus walked out of that tomb into an indestructible new life. And this isn't a fairy tale for Peter. This isn't something that he's kind of made up or just heard about. He saw Jesus being led away to die. He says later on in the letter that he is a witness of Jesus' sufferings. He saw on Easter Sunday morning the folded clothing in an empty tomb. And he saw Jesus being raised and ascending into heaven. It's not a fairy tale. It's history. And in verse 4, Peter unpacks what that history means for us. Have a look at verse 4 with me. Peter says we have new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, an indestructible new life, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's underlining the certainty here, isn't he? He's saying we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, because it depends on Jesus being raised from the dead. He says it's kept in heaven for us. It's safe there. And we are being kept safe too. We're being shielded by God's power for this salvation that is ready to be revealed. So Peter says, God's elect, here's what it means. It means you have a living hope. And not because of the strength of your hope, but because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the living hope that would keep these Christians in Turkey, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, living as strangers in the world, facing hostility. And that is the living hope that will keep us here in East Belfast, 
trusting in the Lord Jesus and living as strangers in the world. It's a certain hope of death being beaten through Jesus' resurrection. Death is one of those things that we don't like to talk about very much, isn't it? But it is still the great statistic. Every one out of one people die. Personally, I've not seen very much of death close at hand. But this week, I did have the privilege of being able to go to the funeral and the burial of one of the long-term members of the church family here, who many of us know. Now, I didn't know Mary very well at all. Um, I only really saw her close to the end. But what I could tell from that funeral was that she was loved. And I was struck while I was watching the burial to see the pain on the faces of her friends and family. I actually found myself crying. I was really struck by the way that the death of somebody in their 80s would still break the hearts of people who loved her. And I wonder if what you're hoping in this morning has got the power to deal with death. Or does it encourage you to kind of bury your head in the sand and ignore it? The Christian hope really doesn't do that. It confronts death head on. It stares at it and says death has been beaten through the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's where I'm going to put my hopes. And that's where I'd encourage you to put your hopes this morning. Uh, not, don't put our hopes in our society improving, uh, whether that's economically or, or morally. The Bible doesn't encourage us that those things are imperishable. It actually says that they're very fragile things. But the Bible does say that this hope is imperishable. It's a living hope. And I'm not going to put my hope in an amazing life now. There are loads of good things to enjoy, aren't there? Uh, Peter, uh, later on in the letter, talks about uh, the glory of this world being like the flowers of the field. It looks great, but it will wither and die. So which one am I going to pick? Uh, somebody once said, we are no fools if we give up what we cannot lose. No, sorry, we are no fools if we give up what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. I think that's helpful. Before we move on, um, one of the things that I guess we find hard about this hope is that we can't see it yet. That's difficult, isn't it? And so we maybe start to think, well, is it really happening? Well, let's be encouraged by these words from Peter. He saw Jesus die. He saw him rise, and he saw him ascend. Um, and if you have a look at the end of verse 5 there. He says that the salvation that Jesus brings is ready It's ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says Jesus is ready. We can't see him now, but he is ready. And one day he will be revealed as the king that he truly is. It's a bit like there's a kind of a stage curtain across this world. And behind it is the indestructible inheritance that we've all got. At the moment, though, we're sitting in the darkness. We can't see what's happening. And we're waiting for the stage lights to come on. But it is ready. There's nothing else that needs to happen apart from Jesus to come back and draw back the curtain and then we'll get to see things as they really are. He'll draw us out of this shadowy world of shifting hopes and growing fears and into his real living world, a world that will never perish, spoil or fade. 
a world that comes through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So friends, this morning we have a living hope if we're one of God's people. Let's move on to the second uh, reason we should be excited about being God's elect. Um, And that is that as God's elect, we have a precious faith. Our faith is precious. Now, as Peter moves on, he raises here the whole question of suffering, which is a huge issue and one that all of us will find a very personal issue at some point in our lives. Uh, Peter's going to come back to this in the letter quite a bit, so we're not going to look at it too much now. But for now, as I read the verses, have a look and see why it is that Peter thinks that Christians can put their suffering into some kind of perspective. So let's have a look at verses 6 to 7. Peter says, In this salvation you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Why? Well, these have come so that our faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Peter's saying, Christians, you can think about your trials, your sufferings, as something that refines your faith, and that's brilliant. And we may be thinking, well, it doesn't sound that great. sounds a bit rubbish, to be honest. But let's think with Peter for a moment. Peter's saying, if our faith is the thing that connects us up to this indestructible inheritance, then it's valuable, isn't it? It's precious. It's even more valuable, even more worthwhile than the suffering that we're going through now. Because ultimately, however deep and however long we've had the pain, it is temporary. And this will last forever. And so if our faith can be refined, if our faith can be proved genuine through suffering, then that's actually a good thing. And we can rejoice in it, even through tears. And Peter's sort of looking around for an illustration here to kind of work out what to compare our faith to. And he compares it to gold. Did you see that there in verse 7? Uh, and I've got here uh, with me a, a piece of uh, solid gold. Well, it's both, this is the most solid gold I've got anyway. You probably can't see it, but uh, I've got a bit of gold here. And, and this is precious because it's got a stamp in it from a jeweler that says that it has been refined. But even so... Peter says, one day it will perish. And even the relationship that it points to, one day even that too will perish. It's not ultimate, is it, that relationship? And so Peter says, our faith is far more precious. Because our faith is the thing that seals the most important relationship we have, the relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship will result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so Christians, God's elect, our faith is precious. We should see that about ourselves. We've got something more precious than gold if we're trusting in Jesus today. Um, And Peter really hammers that in for us in verses 8 and 9. He says, though you've not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now we may say, Peter, that doesn't sound like my kind of faith. I'm not sure I've got this kind of joy that you're talking about. I'm not that sort of person. But I think Peter would say to us this morning, yes, you are. You have it. 
Praise God, it's wonderful. Peter knew Jesus, uh, didn't he? He knew him on the lake, on the cross, uh, saw him going into heaven. And he's writing here to people who have never met Jesus. These people in Turkey don't know Jesus uh, in terms of seeing him alive. But they're still prepared to face a lower quality of life for him. They're still prepared to be insulted because they're Christians. And I think that's the same for us. I think Peter would write the same things here to us today. We haven't seen Jesus. And yet we believe in him and are willing to give things up for him. Um, Over the past few weeks, I've been uh, made really welcome in this church family. Um, And I've been delighted, as I've got to know people, to see the name of Jesus on people's lips time and time again. I've been delighted to get to meet people who want to make Jesus known and are willing to make sacrifices in order for that to happen. And so though you've not seen Jesus, I think Peter would say you love him and you believe in him and you are filled with a joy that is hard to put into words but expresses that hope that you have of seeing Jesus face to face one day. Peter says that's you, that's me, that's us. But here's the thing. Peter says that is the most important thing about us. There really isn't anything more praiseworthy or more noble or more honourable about us than that, that we are trusting in Jesus, that we love him. And so, friends, can I encourage us this morning? Let's not define ourselves by anything else. It's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to just assume the Christian bit and get on with the other bits of our lives. Particularly in a strong church culture where maybe we've grown up in church and lots of people around us are Christians. Um, And so we believe in Jesus and that's great. But the question is, what else have you got? Are you cool? Have you got the grades? Have you got the big salary? Or the good family? All those things are great, aren't they? But they're not going to result in us getting praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so Peter doesn't write to these Christians in Turkey and say, congratulations on that new job, or I'm thrilled to hear about your new grandson. Of course he'd be delighted about those things, but the thing that he is more delighted about is that these people and us believe in the same Jesus who he knew was the risen king of the world. Peter says, that is precious. Congratulations on that. So God's elect, we have a precious faith. Uh, Finally, uh, let's move on to our final point, which is that God's elect have a privileged position. Uh, And to see this, Peter takes us back to the Old Testament. So have a look with me at verses 10 and 11. Peter says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So we need to picture the Old Testament prophets here, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and they've just heard their prophecies and they're thinking, this is amazing, and they're sort of scratching their heads thinking, when is this going to come about? Who is it going to be for? And the answer they get is in verse 12. It was revealed to them 
but they were not serving themselves. They weren't serving them and the people around them primarily. They were mainly serving us. When they spoke of the things that have now been revealed to us, by those who have preached the gospel to us. The gospel, the simple gospel that Jesus died and rose again to be the king of the world and to forgive our sins. That's who they were serving, the people who have heard the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, there really isn't anything more than this. The whole Old Testament is straining towards the suffering and glory of Christ and the grace that would come to us through that. And so Peter says to his Christians scattered around in Turkey, you may be strangers in the world, you may be facing opposition, you may be feeling like there's not a lot going for you at the moment. But actually there is, you're at the centre of God's plan, you're in a privileged position. And Peter's going to build on this, he's going to go in the next couple of chapters and, and apply the Old Testament straight to us in a way that we might never dare to do. He says there are things in the Old Testament that are ours in Jesus, that we would never claim for ourselves. But for now, I think he just wants us to rejoice in this. The end of verse 11 says, even angels long to look into these things. So it's really not that the Old Testament was the exciting bit, um, and then now God's kind of just left us to simmer along for a couple of thousand years. Even angels long to be looking into what we're talking about this morning. Even angels would long to be filling the the pews next to you. Even angels would long to be chatting at coffee time about the things that we've seen in this passage this morning. You can imagine the prophets kind of joining them there as well and saying, you guys are so privileged. I wish that this had come in our day. It'd be a good coffee time, wouldn't it, if we had those guys with us? But they would love to be here because of what we're talking about. It's so special. And so Peter says, marginalised Christians, whether that's in Turkey or on the edge of the Atlantic or wherever it is in the world, whether you're battered and bruised or whether you're worried about the future, whether you're worried about the church, he says, don't worry. He says, you are at the heart of God's plan. You're special. You're privileged. God's grace has all been leading up to you getting it. In the past couple of weeks, I've been getting to know our our parish a little bit, and it's quite diverse, isn't it? But you know what? I don't think an angel uh, would mind whether they lived uh, on the Clarawood Estate or in a big house on the Sandown uh, or in a leafy terrace in Bellman. I don't think they'd care. I think they'd say, I'd love to be in your shoes this morning. They'd love to hear that God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so, friends, let's rejoice. That's where Peter's been going, isn't it? Look back at verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if this morning you feel a little bit of how good God has been to you, of how great his mercy is. Well, if you have, Peter would say, Praise God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all of this has come. Praise be to him. And he'd say, make this hope that he's given you, make this identity of being God's elect with a living hope, right at the centre of who you are. Celebrate that, rejoice in that. It will make you strange, this identity. Peter's honest about that. 
it will make you different from the world around you. And so why not determine this morning to make this identity the thing that you prize most about yourself, the thing that you think makes you the most blessed, most privileged person you know? Why not make it the thing that you long for, for your family and those around you? Why not make it the thing that drives you to get out of bed in the morning, to praise God, and then to live a life following his suffering and yet glorified Saviour? Well, let's pray as we close. Our Father, we do want to say praise be to you. We praise you for your great mercy, for giving us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. And Father, we praise you that you've given us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. And that you're keeping us for that day when your salvation comes. And Father, we praise you today that we're yours, uh, that you've given us our faith and that you've called us to be uh, members of Jesus. Father, thank you that that's been your plan for generations, that you've sent the prophets to tell us uh, all about this grace and we've put our hope in it. And so, our Father, we pray now that you'd help us to rejoice in that with you, with Peter, with the angels and the prophets, in this grace. And we pray that through the name of our precious Saviour. Amen.